Welcome to the Rational Standard Podcast. We are a classical liberal website run by volunteers discussing free and rational ideas. If you would like to support us, please make sure to visit us at rationalstandard.com or by contributing to our Patreon. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Rational Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Woodsmith. I'm here today with an unusual guest, which has been on the podcast before. Uh, my friend and independent political analyst, Christian Hugo. How are you, Christian? I'm very well yourself. Uh, I'm fine, all things considered. With a country that's falling apart and constantly having to hear news about the United States elections, which think that they're falling apart. I think that uh, the average American would do well to live in Africa for a few days. It would be a very entertaining concept. Yes. Um, so, I know a little bit about what's happening in the Middle East. And I think most people do, listening to this. The Middle East has been the focus of geopolitics for not just the last few decades, but if you go back all the way to the Crusades, uh, people really like to get angry around the Holy Land. But you have uh, you follow the Middle East, especially the Syrian conflict, a lot more than I do. So while I might have a theoretical knowledge of international relations and the stuff that I picked up on my waste of money university degree, uh, you have been following the Syrian conflict for uh, how long? At least six years. Yeah. So and uh, when did it start? About six years ago. Uh, 2012, theoretically, it really kicked off in 2013, and I would say that. Until the Americans decided to back the rebels, the moderate rebels, I must add, um, they were in a reasonably precarious pr position. Obviously, Assad was not prepared for such an event. Um, but yes, I, I think that it, it only really started to kick off after we, saw, we started to see the beginnings of the Al-Nusra Front, um, which obviously later on... Um, ISIS broke away from, theoretically. What I like about this sudden, like, just outflowing of knowledge is it shows how complicated Syria really is. Um, I've got, okay, of course. It's not that complicated. <laughs> okay, but um, if you had to summarize the start of the conflict, let's say that you've met a space alien. Um, or the average uh, South African citizen, and they don't know anything about what's happening in Syria. How would you try to make it basic for them? Well, for that, we'd need to go back into Syrian history throughout the, the ages. Um, I would say that, to start off with, you'd need to say that Assad is part of a, a minority within the country, um, and that, for the most part, people have been happy well, not happy, but content with his reign, well, at least his father's, and that I think that this is quite possibly just the overflow of the expectation in the 90s when he took over, was it the early 2000s, I can't remember now, um, of him starting to liberalize the country, which he didn't. Um, do you, would you say it was um, people grew to expect liberalization due to the new wave of democracy that happened post-Soviet Union? And because that didn't happen, that contributed towards the Arab Spring in general and also towards discontent in Syria? Well, his father was a quite a 
the totalitarian, if I may add. Um, totalitarian and, or just authoritarian? Well, well, I mean, when the last time that there was a, a conflict of this type, um, he was able to force them into a cave. And then instead of clearing out the cave, he just covered the entrance of the cave with cement um, and left them there. That doesn't take, t- so I'm going to be pedantic, that doesn't make him a totalitarian, it just makes him a brutal war leader. <laughs> well, it's, it's debatable whether he was a brutal war, no, it's not debatable whether he was a brutal war leader, no, no, no. Um, no, I, I think that he was, he wasn't the kindest person on the planet. <laughs> but um, this is, um, I assume this was against his enemies, against rebels. This was against rebels. Which was, yes. isn't nice, because, you know, we, we like our political... We, okay, we might not be big fans of democracy, but we prefer it to complete totalitarianism, and we like freedom in general, right? Yes. But um, how, wa- how was um, Assad's reign in terms of civil liberties and economic liberties? Well, it, 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 liberalized, it liberalized very slightly, um, but it didn't change much from his father. He... he I think he took the stance that his father had a a good thing going. If I if I can. So, like w- would you say it was functionally a monarchy with just? It's certainly a monarchy. Yeah, and um, so now monarchies obviously aren't inherently I- uh, immoral. Now, yeah. I'm not a big fan of them because I think there's a lot of problems with them. Uh, I also think there's a lot of problems with democracy. But how was it, how was life for the average citizen? Would you be? Did you ha- did they have freedom of speech? Did they have um, definitely not? Okay. Did they have the right to start businesses? Did they have a free yes. market? Okay. They had a, they had a reasonably free market, and um, I presume they didn't. Have, they had no political rights, and well, it, it's not too different from the the emirates or the the emirs um, and from Qatar. Mm. It it really isn't too different. So a generic Middle Eastern republic with quotation marks. Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> okay, so what I think most people will know is that there, in around the early 2010s, we had this thing called Arab Spring. Yes. That was a part of, I wouldn't actually call it, a lot. Of, uh, at the time a lot of the political experts were calling it the new wave of democracy. Um, but we see by the results of it now that, if anything, it was actually a wave of authoritarianism, because the in most of the countries where the Arab Springs um, started, they tended to get taken over by militants who made the previous dictators look actually not that bad. Well, we, for a short time, we had a very interesting concept where city-states in Libya started to form, mm. um, although that has now come to an end um, with the the new conflict over who is the legitimate government you can also you can't have a city state if your cities have been flattened by bombs that's a very true statement but yes i i think that it only really started to kick off in 2013 when it seemed that assad was in a slow losing position and that there really wasn't much for him to do the, I remember that um, there were talks of there were major negotiations between Assad to step down after a certain point. There's still theoretically this promise to the Russians that he will not run in the 2022 election, <laughs> um, although we'll have to see what happens then. I'm I'm sure that Putin will forgive him for running another four times. I will say uh, Putin should very em- well, should empathise with people not really liking term limits. Yes, I think so. I think so. Um, so now, just to backtrack a little bit. Um, so you say you said earlier about the moderate rebels. 
Yeah. So take us into the factions in Syria. Now, most people only really know about Assad and then ISIS. And, but ISIS is kind of irrelevant now. Isn't yes. It? So yeah. you, you have the Syrian army who is backed by Assad. Um, and then you have something called the Free Syrian Army. Now, the Free Syrian Army is a bit of a misnomer. It, it's simply a loose collection of rebel groups with very different goals for after they won, which they now won't. Um, and that, the Al Nusra Front was part of that. ISIS for a short time was part of that. Um, and then you also have other groups. There's so many. It's not even important. You can <laughs> at that point you can say that they are almost moderate, but not really. I I don't think the people listening to music of beheadings um, <laughs> are the people that, that the West should be backing. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think that a the beheading needs to be enjoyed in silence. Indeed. <laughs> um, but yes, we have many different actors. I, I think that, um, yes, the, it was really tickets for Assad um, in 2014 when he lost the, I think it was an 18-month siege of Aleppo, two years. What, um, what is Aleppo? <laughs> well, that that's a, a, a very, very <laughs> philosophical question. It's an economical matter. It, it is indeed. And I, so the basis of it came down to after nothing really mattered until Assad lost Aleppo and the road to Aleppo. He was in complete dire straits and ISIS had taken quite a few cities at Raqqa. Um, it was a real pity um, when he took when they took Palmyra um, and beheaded all of the statues um, but it, it really yes the Russians absolutely saved him I, I remember at one I think it was April 2015 um, when they started flying the sorties and that's really where you start to see the map that you have today is the the effect of Russian sorties 70 sorties a day I remember at the beginning flying every single day so for our listeners who won't know what a sortie is, it would be a, a formation of bombers who would support ground forces. I'm Indeed, correct? yes. Yeah. And um, so uh, we haven't spoken about the Kurds yet. And they're probably so the, the, the Kurds are part. a very interesting story. So the Kurds were the only people that were really prepared for such a thing because they were already prepared um, to be... I, I wouldn't call them terrorists. I, I would call them freedom fighters. Um, <laughs> well, the things do they kill civilians to cause terror? Um, they do in Turkey. Um, oh God! Okay. <laughs> but obviously, so there's there are four different factions. So there's the the Iraqi Kurds, and there are the Syrian Kurds, and they're the Turkish Kurds, and they're the Iranian Kurds, and they all operate very independently of each other. And so uh, the Syrian Kurds were designated by America as a terrorist organization um, for quite a while now. And I think that the, what the Turks have been actively trying to do is to sort of point at that and say these are not good people. But I, I think that anybody who fights against ISIS and liberates liberates um, cities and ground as, as you can see on the map they still control Raqqa um, mm. in the, the center of the country so um, for people wanting to refer to the map that we're talking about it's a very useful map it's um, you can go to syria.live 
uamap.com and it is a live map of what's going on in Syria. You can also use it to actually watch other parts of the world as well. Very useful. But so it, it really all kicked off for the, the Kurds when they were the only people that, that didn't fall to ISIS. This is now in Iraq. Um, and they very quickly took back ground and was able to go over the, the, the Mesopotamian um, and into Syria in order to, to help the, the Syrian Kurds. Um, you can you can definitely see at the, the beginning of 2004, at the beginning of 2015, late 14, um, the incredible gains that they made. And it, it is a logical, it was incredibly logical for the US coalition forces um, to back them. Although it is a pity mm. that they don't really anymore. I think it's inevitable that we need to demoralize parts of this conflict, um, especially that we aren't a real politic podcast as much as I would like to be. Yes. That'd be fun. But um, let's discuss the Kurds from a moral point of view and the standard why they should be supported. I personally do support the Kurds. Yeah. Um, That's why I was actually quite surprised that they are designated as a terrorist organization. Only the Syrian Kurds and the, the Turkish Kurds. So, because I'm actually very, so I'm very strict with my definition of terrorism. So, I believe that a terrorist is a an actor who intentionally harms civilians to cause terror in order to reach a political goal. Do they do this? They do this um, quite a bit in Turkey as retri retribution. Um, for attacks by the Turkish government. The, the story has been going on oh. for decades now. And it's just tit for tat. It is a tit for tat story and there's no end in sight, at least in Turkey. Okay, so I'm not a fan of that at all. But what from what I have heard about the Kurds is that um, when much of the Middle East is made up of you know, radical Islamists, um, Salafi Sunnis and yes. all the let's bomb t towers in America type uh, stuff, uh, the Kurds are actually comparatively quite moderate. They're good when it comes to women's rights, um, or at least better than the others. I think that the full female cause of Kurdish fighters uh, can attest to that. Well, it, it, it's one of the, the few groups in the Middle East that truly do believe in women's rights and equality um, among all people. You can, When you look at um, the land that the Kurds have taken, to a large extent, um, these are also gains by what happened in 2000, I think 2016 or 2015, is that they acknowledged that they had um, taken on so many non-Kurdish Arabs um, into the, under their wing um, that they then called it the Syrian Defense Force. Mm. Um, and so this is not only a sign that they have um, respect for, for other Arabs but are willing to work with them and willing to accept them and willing to arm them um, and willing to give them a certain amount of autonomy uh, yes I think it also comes back to the fact that the Kurds themselves are not that um, absolutist in that they contain not just Muslims but um, and also not just particular schools of Islam they contain I think they have a body as well they have some bodies Sufis uh, Sunnis and I think do they have some any Shia I, I, I can't remember exactly anymore I, there should be some yeah. in Iran although the, the their general population is so spread out that you can't really designate them as one specific group I think there would more be a a national di diaspora than any sort of religious yes. movement. The, um, they're quite like the 
um, the Jewish population um, before 47 um, with the mandate. Mm. Is there any sort of um, hearkening to the past that the fact that uh, Saladin, uh, possibly one of the most famous of the Crusader Muslim generals, was a Kurd? Well, it's quite possible. I, 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 I can't really comment on it, but I... I, I <laughs> Outside of your historical <laughs> yes. interests. I, I think that what we should focus on is the the modern Kurdish population. I don't think that there's much to gain from looking at it. If we look at... I think we need to look at history. If, if we yeah. look at the... the at German history, you couldn't have guessed that they would have started two world wars. Um, well, I don't think they started two world wars. I think they started one because the first one was more caused by the French and Russians escalating things. Definitely, but the the, the blank check was definitely a, a contributing factor. I, I, I will say that it wouldn't have been... Um, if it had just been Austria and Austria hadn't asked Germany for help, I don't think it would have escalated. Um, but it was... But they would have seen that had happened but it, it, yeah yeah i think inevitably it probably would have ended up being and this is all to the side i mean world war one is very interesting but yes i think it would have been austria-hungary versus um russia that's it, it I, would I think have it would been, just been that yes. i think france would have stayed out of it if germany stayed out of it that would have I, been fine possibly yes. yeah that's what should have happened basically guys uh don't form any alliances that is the never form an alliance it's uh, never have any friends because you're just gonna start a world war um how can that lesson be applied to what's happening in Syria? Um, I, I think that it, it's quite interesting to see how, I, I, I wouldn't call it a, a stabbing in the back, but it was definitely taking advantage. When the, the Russians started flying their sorties and they started, the Syrian started, the Syrian army, so Assad's troops, started to really gain ground um, the Kurds did see their, their gap in Afrin um, and took quite a bit of land uh, off the rebels. Which really, it, I remember the day and it, it was incredibly entertaining to see how the rebels were just being closed in on from all sides. Um, so, um, would you say, as a form of, because we're back to the moralizing, yes. as much as we can agree that Assad is not really a nice guy, um, and his regime is not that nice, that um, he is a lesser evil in the region. Definitely. I, I think that, that Assad um, has definitely committed incredible war crimes. It's some debatable, some definitely not. Um, but I feel that there's one thing that, we, that the world should try to avoid, and that is putting rebel groups in the position of running a government. And this is a nice rebel group. No, actually, no. Rebel groups are never good at governance because their job is to rebel. Yes. Um, the, the, this actually goes for South African politics as well. Um, the ANC is a liberation group. They should never have been put in power regardless of if they were nice or not, especially seeing that they were also t performed the worst of all the liberation groups and then just took all the credit. Yes. The UDM should be in charge. Um, but so after the, the sorties started flying, you can see that there, there was a main road that ran, uh, the main road from Damascus to Aleppo was the, the main point that the... The titular road to Damascus. Yes. Um, that they started to take. Um, and as they, they formed up, they were able to defend their positions in Latakia far better 
and soon after that they they basically wiped the floor with the rebels to the point where ISIS was basically a non-entity after a year and a half. Do you think the United States considered to support uh, supporting ISIS after the Russians turned on them? <laughs> after the Russians turned on them? So after the Russians started fighting ISIS in um, making a concerted effort against um, ISIS, do you oh, think the, the at, Americans at, considered... At no, at no point did the Russians make a, a truly concerted effort ah. to attack ISIS. Their, their main enemy was the Oh, rebels. the moderate rebels. Yes. Okay. Um, so, uh, which the US were actually backing for quite a while anyway, if I remember correctly. Yes. So, yes. so the, the US... Um, flew about a third of the sorties throughout the first years of the war that the Russians did in those, those first mm. 90 to 180 days, which is very debatable, um, but definitely the first 90 days. Um, but so after they were able to take the road to Aleppo, the, they basically just cleared everything out. The homes fell, strangely enough, um, quite late. Um, but it, it would not have been possible without Russian intervention and, and um, the the very kind help <laughs> that they got from the the Lebanese very terrorist groups. Yeah. But um, this is after yeah. a while. This, this That's is Hezbollah, right? Yes. Yeah. Let's let's ignore them. Um, <laughs> That's for the polite thing to say. Yes. Okay. Lebanon was best when it was run by the Normans. Exactly. Um, but so the, the whole thing is that after the, it's far easier to explain this as a war that started off as a very dubious fight for freedom yeah. and is yeah. now turned into a war between Turkey and Iran. So you say regional hegemons. Regional hegemons. Yeah. So, so as we've seen, so it's Persia versus whatever Anatolian Empire, which has yes. just been the fight for thousands of years. It it it, it is the Persians versus the the Rumstake yeah. of the Rumstate of um, of the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> yeah, it was because it was Ottomans versus Persians. And before that, it was Persians versus Byzantines. And before that, it was Romans versus Persians. Then before yes. that, it was Greeks. Yeah, it was Greeks versus and things. We're skipping out a lot of things as well. Yeah. And then before that, there was actually Hittites as well versus Persians. The Persians, are they the bad guys? <laughs> I think in this case, you can probably assume that they are not the good guys. Yeah, I think they might have been the good guys in some of the wars, but definitely against Ottomans. Well, not well, necessarily the, actually. The the thought that Iran is currently running to at some point it was three wars um, in order to gain a greater foothold, a greater um, sphere of influence in the Middle East is quite concerning. Um, I believe that in the Syrian case they are supporting the, the lesser of two evils, whether you believe mm. in supporting any evil is very debatable, but in this case I believe that the the Turks have taken, in my opinion, a very dubious stance. Well, they're Turks. They can't help it. Yes. I think that if you, anyone has looked into Erdogan and his, um, not even his policies, but just the way he conducts himself. Well, I, th I think that the main question is if the Turks have such a, uh, feel such a threat by having the Kurds on their borders, did they not feel the threat when ISIS controlled those borders? Exactly. And so the taking land not from ISIS but from the Kurds who had basically annihil annihilated ISIS is 
just it's unforgivable so here's the thing did isis want any territory in turkey did they well theoretically they wanted to conquer the world oh yeah well technically <laughs> so does china on paper yes <laughs> well uh, so they, they only want to claim the first what's it 1200 kilometers of, of the ocean yes well that this is the start yes then they, after they get that the uh, tools of atlantis which are hidden there then they can use that to take over the rest of the world exactly they need their super carriers um so i think yeah discussing turkey is actually quite um because it, it's it, this war in a lot of ways it's power politics between turkey iran and russia which are the three Hegem regional hegemons of the Caucasus, of Anatolia, and the Middle East. Yes. The United States is also uh, is a world hegemon, so they obviously have an effect there. But we can discuss uh, U.S. foreign policy after this because I think that's another topic. But um, firstly, why is Russia involved? So Russia has a very long history with Syria, and specifically the the Assad family. Um, since the the days of the Soviet Union, they were constantly selling weapons, giving training people um, in order to fight Israel. And it, they basically believe that Syria is this incredibly important strategic position as it divides so many countries mm. in the Middle East. It also has control of a lot of oil pipelines. Uh, well, the, the Deir Zor area and the, the main issue that they had was that there was supposed to be a gas pipeline from Qatar running through Syria, which was blocked um, shortly before the war. Um, it's, strategically, it's a very important country. Yeah, you can see it. It is, uh, in a way, the crossroads of the Middle East. It is the crossroads of the Middle East. That's the, the historical importance of Damascus. So I've heard some people um, say that Russia wants it to, for access to a warm water port, because we can all agree that Russia's only goal in life well, is to get warm water. The interesting thing is that they already have a warm water yeah, port <laughs> in Latakia. Um, and it's it's quite an, a nice port. You, you can really... It, it prime property. Remind me where Latakia is. Is that the one on the... It's right over here. Oh, over there. So it's, it's, to oh, so the, it's in Syria. Yeah. It's in Syria. Okay, so, so, they, so it's to the, the northern... It, it's by the border with Turkey. So that's why they are... That's another reason then to back up the claim that they're doing it for a warm water port. Because if there's no guarantee that the new dispensation yes. will support a Russian port on their borders, and I, I also think that the the stance that the Russians have taken of having stable countries around Lebanon and Israel is, is quite a, it's an interesting geopolitical stance to take. It's weird because uh, you would think that if they didn't like Israel, they would probably they would actually rather opt for destabilizing the region. I, I think that, well, the... Well, destabilizing the, Israel. I, I, I would believe that, that the main desire of Israel, I, as I think most countries would have that desire, um, is to have to see your enemies in complete shambles. And for, mm. the, for this time, the last few years, it has been. And, and so I, I think that it, it's a very... Yes, it, it's a... It's a almost a prime position for Israel to have. Um, is Israel taking advantage of the situation to seize territory? That is an ecumenical matter. Because <laughs> um, I can see on this little map here, there's a little blue um, splotch in the southwest, um, which says it's a uh, coalition forces, but it's very close to Israel. 
They borrowed it. They borrowed the territory. They, they might give it back. They, 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 yes, I, I, I think that they'd be willing to have a talk. So now, I think, um, so to talk about Turkey, and this is something which I know a little bit more about, because the Turkish foreign, foreign policy towards the Anatolia and Turkey has kind of almost been a little bit unchanging for a long, for centuries. And the reason is, is because even if they don't like who owns Turkey, Turkey has always been the gateway, not just to the Middle East, but also to the East in general. Yeah. So and the Black Sea and the Black Sea. So you, um, if you, so, as a European in the West and also as America, with having to go through the Mediterranean to do trade, um, if you want to do any trade with anything um, east of the Dardanelles or in the Black Sea or in the Caucasus or in the Middle East, you kind of need to either be on friendly terms with Turkey or be um, brave enough to mess with them. As a state actor, definitely. Yeah. And also what I know is that a Russia and whoever's owned the Anatolia has always had bad relations. And that's... Russia has a very strange relationship with Turkey, where they are currently... Turkey recently bought, um, I think it was S-400 missiles, missile systems from, from the Russians. I think the Russians were just an equal opportunist arms dealer for that. <laughs> no, I think that this is a, a true... It's a Sign true desire <laughs> for for Russia to have good relations with Turkey, and that this is simply a this and the Armenian conflict is simply mm. something to the side where they they just exchange lead <laughs> and brass with and proxies. Yes, um, I think also that because Russia is no doubt a declining power, who because they are very large on the map, people and they still have nuclear weapons, people are still a little bit afraid of them. But ultimately, they are a declining power who does not have the capacity to wage a total war anymore. Well, with, whether they're a declining power or not, I, I believe that the ability to maintain the sphere of influence is definitely debatable. Yes, no, and that's the thing. I think the Russians have become better at diplomacy than they are at war. Yes, it, it's almost a requirement for them at this point. And I think Putin, because of his cult of personality that goes far beyond his borders, is able to exert this influence over other world leaders. Well, you, you see it generally in, in the Middle East that you have a sort of a, a what would you call it? A strong man. But a love for a strong man. Yes, well, there, a cult of personality the, yes, is the term, yeah. But there's an incredible respect, um, I think, for Putin in, in most middle eastern states that do not have very good relations with america yeah so everyone but israel <laughs> well, saudi arabia uh, and the, the saudi arabia is very debatable if they actually have good relations with the united states i will see we'll see it's one of those countries where i really don't know why the united states gives them the time of day besides well, oil, they're, they're, which america's becoming a net exporter of energy so they're a very good ally to have as a counterpoint to to iran wouldn't it be better for the united states and this let's go on to the topic which i think will be our final main topic which is u.s foreign policy wouldn't it be better to um keep supporting israel as they are already which is um likes or not possibly the best place to live in the middle east um can you think of another not really. Yeah. Um, I like to say the story that there's more women fighter pilots in Israel than there are women drivers in Saudi Arabia. Or do you think that we, might be changing? We, we, well, the, 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 new, the new king 
um, did change that law. So you, you do get drivers. I, I recently saw a very good, I think it was a BBC One um, program about a, a lady living in London who was sort of testing the waters in terms of living in Saudi Arabia. And it, it was quite a fiasco after... Um, I can't remember exactly what she did, but she was asked to leave the country. <laughs> okay, so still not looking good for Saudi Arabia. But um, Israel can't do it alone for the fact that um, a lot of the world is still very anti-Semitic. And um, they're also a tiny little state, which a lot of people still perceive as a rogue state. Um, even a lot of Jews do not support them. Which um, Well, there, there's definitely an, an anti-Semitic stance under certain... Um, very religious Jewish people. Yes, yeah. um, I think being a self-hating Jew is a is a stereotype. It's a, it's a very sad stereotype. Yeah. So, but um, but we can recognize that Israel can't do this alone as an as a U.S. ally in the Middle East. And if we assume that the U.S. should intervene in the Middle East, which is a debate in itself, yes. which will take a whole new podcast. Um, and I think we possibly will have this, maybe a follow-up where we discuss the need yeah. for a Pax Americana. Um, but, um, so a lot of us, uh, the idea in general was, when the US was slightly friendly towards Cur the Kurds, and we know um, people like Senator Rand Paul are very pro the Kurds, and his Indeed. policy was that if he was elected, he would be pro um, I, I uh, think the, the Kurds. most sane senators support the Kurds at this point. And um, the main idea from a foreign policy uh, perspective was to prop up Israel and Kurdistan as proper United States allies in the Middle East. Well, I, th I think that the, the position that Israel and the United States currently have is that they have a, quite a shortage of moderate friends in the region. Yeah. Um, and that it, it would be desirable to have well, not only to have a friend in the in the region, but to also, um, I I wouldn't say redraw, but to fix the the borders that were um, created under the the colonial regimes of the mm. French. I like I just mentioned the French. I know. <laughs> you, you won't you won't hear me complain about anybody but the French generally. <laughs> the Germans and the Belgians are quite bad. Uh, we we shouldn't start with the Belgians. <laughs> The Belgians should not and do not exist. Sorry if you're Belgium, but I think you should feel about this yourself. Uh, you should feel the same way, because uh, you're either actually Dutch or French. Yes, they they should just rejoin. I mean, it's, it's the European Union now would allow them to rejoin. I think they would, uh, but I think Belgium is more powerful as the head of the EU that nobody that because they have no actual national identity themselves. I mean, wouldn't it be more interesting if? if um, the seat of power was of Europe was in the Netherlands. As long as it's not in France. Um, I'll, I'm fine with Amsterdam, The the Hague, Zurich, or... Um, Zurich isn't even part. Exactly. <laughs> That's why I was well waiting for you to catch that. Or Berlin, but I think that might be controversial. Yes. Um, but um, here's the question. Why is it that it makes a lot of sense for the United States to back the Kurds? Why are they not? It's expensive. It is slightly politically it, incorrect. It, it would be it would be possibly problematic at this point for them to jump mm. back in, um, and it, it it's 
the war is practically over. Mm. So it's just they, they missed their chance. I think so. I think that their, their only opportunity is to beef up the Kurds in order to improve their negotiating capabilities with the Syrian government after everything is divided. I think that the United States, they, they're so used to wasting money that I think it wouldn't really cost them too much to drop a hang of a lot of ammunition and weapons in Kurdistan. Well, it, it would be interesting. Um, I, I wonder whether they, as one always goes over this and sees what's stopping them from crossing the border, um, the Turkish border with Syria. Mm. And that that is a debate that can be had, but I, I suspect that it, it will not. I don't think that any country, apart from Chechnya, um, would take on a, a larger country in the hopes of gaining ground. And so, yes, I, I think that there isn't much of a risk in, in the Americans backing the Kurds at this point. Yeah. So would you say that there's a, a big part of the reason they're not is that they want to maintain their relations with Turkey? As the I gateway. Think so. As the I th- gateway to I the East. I think so. Yeah. I, th- I think that they look at Turkey as a bad ally um, in a strategic position. Yeah. And that their abandoning of the Kurds at this point um, would mean that they would have not a bad relationship but a problematic relationship with the Kurds. Yeah. I think that's the main reason as well that we see historically Turkey is a terrible ally. They're not nice people. They're, well, the people might be fine but the government's the not nice. The people are fine but a, a country that, that requires um, the military to install liberal governments um, <laughs> probably has problems of its own yeah and then uh, and recent and the most recent attempted coup the military lost which is the sad part um, that was hilarious when um Erdogan went onto his cell phone he i think he used instagram and pay, and posted a story where he told the people of turkey to rise up <laughs> and it actually happened oh dear uh but um and so I think that uh, people trying to understand this region need to understand that Turkey has a strategic geographical position for um, America because America is desperate for bad friends in the region because Israel is not big enough and for some reason they're not backing the Kurds. And if they were to back the Kurds, they would have to basically turn their back on Turkey, which maybe the, that would be the moral thing to do, but it's also exceptionally risky. Yes. I, I think that the, the main question at the end of the fight with the rebels is will peaceful negotiations be the main strategy of Assad? Will mm. he actually talk to the Kurds or will he run them over? And for that reason, I believe that it makes more sense for the Americans, if not to support them as a nation state, just to arm them to the teeth in order to support the concept of diplomatic talks. Yes. And I, I agree with that. Yes. I think that Americans more than anyone else should realize the importance of being armed. I also think that the very important thing is to just stop any further deaths from occurring. I, I mm. think none of us are really pro-death um, at this point, especially in this region. Uh, and that rebels... Are you not an anti-natalist with your pro-death policy? <laughs> I, I, yes, I, I, I don't take... A particularly good stance on antinatalism. But, um, I th- I think that the the main goal is to create a, an environment where it would be possible um, for people for the refugees to come back if they so desire mm, and restabilize other regions as a yes. result. 
Okay, so this has been a very interesting podcast. I'm very glad to have finally recorded this. Yes. Um, geopolitics is something which I'm very interested in. And it's a very nice welcome break from discussing COVID and US politics and the perpetual incompetence of South African politics. I hope that um, you as a listener enjoyed. And uh, maybe in the future, we'll be discussing some other geopolitical issues. Yes, and the shout out to 538 Project Nate Silver. <sighs> That's really that's US politics. <laughs> okay, but um, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode.